this week, uh, a couple of things happened that, that made me realize I shouldn't assume things. So I want to ask a couple of questions and answer a couple of questions this morning as we look at Philippians 3. Um, the first one's sort of technical and maybe you think silly. Why does Easter always change dates? assume that everybody knows that. Maybe not. I mean, why can't it be like Christmas? It's always on December 25th. Or, if we really have it to be on a Sunday, why can't it just be like the first Sunday in April so that we don't get confused and are always wondering, when's Easter? Um, there's a really good reason for that. Uh, what happened right before, what was going on during that time? What were they celebrating right before the resurrection? Passover, right? And the Jews follow a semi-lunar calendar as opposed to a solar calendar. And Passover always takes place on the first full moon after the first day of spring. And so Easter, since it happened right after Passover, always takes place on the first Sunday following the first full moon following the first day of spring. Is that clear? We think... But that's still confusing. Yes, it is. What's wonderful about that, as opposed to saying, can we just do it on the first Sunday of every April and forget about all this having to know when spring starts and then when the full moon is, and then can we just make it easier? The beauty of that is, is that if we think about it, Easter is tied to and always is tied to God's redemptive plan for His people throughout history. We are intimately connected to that Passover event when he led his people out of bondage in Egypt. That's a wonderful truth for us just to kind of hold on to and rejoice in and just kind of steep in that I'm not different from the way, in one sense, God treated his people in the past. I am part of a long line, a wonderful, glorious line of God revealing himself to his people and having a plan to redeem them. We're just kind of the fulfillment, the, the end of that long train. And so that's why Easter moves around, is because it's intimately tied to Passover. It's intimately tied to God's promises from thousands of years ago. And we should rejoice in that. And we should glory in that. And not get frustrated when we're trying to figure out when is Easter this year. Second question. Why do we celebrate Easter anyway? I mean, isn't it true that the reason we gather on Sunday is because that's the day of the resurrection? From the very beginning of the church, the church chose purposefully to gather on Sunday as opposed to Saturday, the Sabbath, because they were celebrating the resurrection. It would have been a hardship to early Jewish Christians because Sunday was the first day of the week and most of them probably needed or would have had to work. Because Saturday was the day of rest. That's when everything would have been closed. Sunday, things would have been hopping again. And for them to purposefully gather on that day would have been a hardship, and yet they felt like it was important. We are celebrating the resurrection. So if we do that every week, that's why we gather on a Sunday. Why do we need a special day? And why is it this one? Why is it not Good Friday? 
Why isn't that the big event? Because that's when our sins were forgiven. That's when that wrath that I deserved was placed on somebody else. That's when reconciliation took place. That's when the barrier that broke down my sin from God was was taken away. Why isn't that the day? Why is this the day that we change our schedule and have food and dress nice? I think there's lots of reasons why we do that. Some cultural, some... For me... And what I hope that you would take away, if nothing else, the resurrection is where our hope is. It's where our hope is. If Christ is not resurrected, then I will not be resurrected. As much as I'm thankful for the forgiveness of sins, as much as I am overwhelmed by the fact that I don't experience the wrath of God, I long for that day when this body will be done away with and sin will be done away with. The resurrection gives me hope. And so in addition to every Sunday being thankful for what God has done for me, we gather once a year and do something special as a reminder that that is the only reason that we should have any hope is the resurrection of our Savior the proof that that sacrifice was acceptable and the down payment, the, the example, the, the proof that what happened to him will, be hap- will happen to me. As Paul says in Romans 6, if we identify with him in his death, certainly we will also identify with him in his resurrection. When we when we die to self and, and change our allegiance from the kingdom of me to the kingdom of God, when the Holy Spirit comes and indwells us, then there is this hope, there's this promise that one day we too will be resurrected, that we too will be changed, that we too will get this glorified body in the same way that Jesus did. And so that is my hope. I want to attain to the resurrection of the dead, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 3, verse 11. So that's what I want to talk about this morning. How do we guarantee, because I don't want to assume this morning, how how do we know that we will attain to the resurrection of the dead? Personally. Not just because, okay, Jesus did. That doesn't mean that everybody on the planet's going to. How can I know, how can you know that we're going to attain to the resurrection of the dead? And that's what Paul talks about in the first 11 verses of chapter 3 of Philippians. We'll see that there's, he's going to give two commands for us to do. He's going to describe what that looks like. He's going to give a long example that hopefully we can begin to apply to our own lives and go, okay, am, am I attaining to the resurrection of the dead or am I, am I missing something? Okay, time to be truthful here this morning. How many of you have ever been driving along and seen the blue and red lights in your rearview mirror? Raise your hand. Time to be honest. Okay. What's your first thought? Is there a prize for the most times? No. (laughs) Yes, there are donuts right out here. What's your first thought? Oh, no. Say it. Say it. I wasn't speeding. Good. What else? 
Does, does anybody ever have thoughts run through your head, like Janet, of what you're going to say in hopes of getting out of it? Anybody ever think that? Yeah, but it's never I'm not saying does it work. I'm saying does, do those thoughts come in your mind? Do you ever start thinking of excuses? Just, just Tim and I. That's it. <laughs> Nobody else thinks tries to think of excuses. Mark does good. I, I think that's sort of human nature when we're up against trouble, right? When we're up against someone who is going to judge us, when we're up against someone who's going to possibly punish us, we begin to think of how can I get out of this? How can I lessen this? How can I get a warning instead of an actual ticket? Is there a way that I can use words or a good excuse to lessen the punishment? I think that's human nature. We want, and maybe it's even, I was in a hurry because my daughter's about to graduate. Maybe it's a good thing. I'm going to the hospital. I'm, there's, there's these good reasons why. When I was in, in college, I was uh, driving from Austin back to my hometown because I'd been asked to speak at a youth event at a church. And it was, I don't know, Friday night, 11.30 or 12, it was late. And I was tired and needed to get there because the next morning I had to get up early because I was talking to a group of students early in the morning. And I don't really know, I never knew how fast I was going because he never told me. Um, but that was, and so, and I gave him that excuse. I'm tired, I've been driving for five hours, and I've got to get up early in the morning, and he was nice enough to let me off. I didn't get a ticket. Isn't that good? And I think we, we want to do that. The question is, when we stand before God, what, what's our excuse? Let's say Franklin Graham is standing before God. What's he going to say? What credentials is he going to give God? My dad's Billy. If some of you know his testimony, he was sort of a rebel for a while. Is he going to use that? Hey, God, you, you know, my testimony has powerfully impacted lots of people. Plus, there's that whole Samaritan's Purse thing. Is that, is that not worth something? I think it's human nature for us to want to put a good foot forward. Right? We're, we're told that. First impressions, right? we, we want to put a good foot forward. We want people to like us. We, I would even say we, we want God to like us. And so I think in our minds sometimes we are willing to come up with things, good reasons why God should like us. Why He should let us be in His presence. And we're going to see that from Paul that that's, that's misunderstanding the gospel and that that will not attain to the resurrection. And so we read these words in Philippians chapter 3. Paul writes, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me and it is safe for you. 
Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Father, I pray that you would use these words to encourage our hearts and our minds. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. And see, Brandon, you told me to pray before you came up, and I'm not quite finished. But it won't take long, so you're welcome just to sit. See, we email and we talk, and then he gives me, we, he sends, here, let's do it this way, and then I say, no, let's do it this way. We probably should. It's okay. Two commands. First one, then we're going to sing. He says, rejoice in the Lord. We talked about this, I don't know, three or four weeks ago when we were doing Philippians. Uh, we referred to this passage. And he says, when you do that, it's safe for you. It's safe for you to rejoice in the Lord. The reason is, remember, Paul wants to attain to the resurrection of the dead. He's going to talk about how to do that, but he begins with this command to rejoice. I think the reason is, it's hard for us to sin when we're rejoicing in God. It's hard for us to be angry when we're rejoicing in God. It's hard for us to be bitter when we're rejoicing in God. It's hard for us to trust in our own kingdom when we're rejoicing in God's kingdom. It's hard for me to build myself up and try to find my own righteousness and rejoice in me when I'm rejoicing in God. That's difficult to do. And when we rejoice in God together, that helps to keep us from rejoicing in ourselves alone, which is another reason that we gather on a regular basis to worship and fellowship and spend time together, because when we get off on our own, Human nature says you're important. Human nature says you need to build your kingdom. That's the way we respond when we get away from people who are encouraging us to rejoice in God. And so that's Paul's very first command that may seem a little disconnected. In fact, in a lot of your Bibles, there may be a paragraph break after verse 1. I don't think there should be. I think Paul very intentionally has placed that at the beginning of this long passage about where his righteousness is to be found because if I'm not rejoicing in God, I'm going to rejoice in myself. 
in what I think are my strengths and my abilities and my gifts and my talents and my righteousness. And so we rejoice. And so we want to do that together this morning. We want to stand and worship God and sing and glory in Him and not ourselves. Let's stand together. And you may be seated. Okay, what was the first command that, that helps us, that helped Paul, allowed him to attain to the resurrection? Or we have to keep central? What is it? Rejoice. rejoice in the Lord. As opposed to rejoicing in our own goodness, our own self, our own kingdom that we seek to build. Command number two, verse two, he repeats it three times. It's almost like you come up to the railroad tracks and the arms that go down and the, the signal is blaring, right? He says uh, in the ESV, look out, look out, look out. In the New American Standard, it's beware, beware, beware. Three times he repeats it. Uh, And then he lists three things that we're to be aware of, but really it's all the same thing, just three metaphors for the same group of people. He calls them dogs, he calls them evil workers, and he calls them those who mutilate the flesh or the mutilation in some versions. See, in, in Paul's day, there were, there were Jewish Christians and there were Gentile Christians. There were people who came to Christ who had been Jews, who knew God and what He had done from eternity past. And there are those who were Gentiles, pagans beforehand. And there were some Jewish Christians who felt like, you know, these Gentiles really need to sort of become Jewish for them to be really Christians, really God's people. And from things like circumcision, which was which the law required, to food laws, to celebrating certain festivals, they, they tried to add to the gospel. And so he gives three descriptions of, of really insults to these people. First, he calls them dogs. You may think, well, that's not much of an insult. How many of you own a dog? Right? And a dog is man's best friend, right? We don't thank him. But in, but in Jewish circles, a dog was, was the unclean of unclean. They didn't domesticate dogs. Jews didn't have them as pets. They were scavengers. They attacked the weak. Uh, they really were unclean. And so Paul is saying, you who think you're clean and are trying to impose standards on people that you think are unclean, really you're the one that's unclean. And far worse than them, you're dogs. Not only that, you're evil workers as opposed to workers of righteousness, which the Jews felt that they were. We're the ones that have the law. We're the ones that righteous are righteous, and we do that. We're workers of righteousness. And Paul says, no, you're evil workers. And then there's a, a play on words. Instead of those that are demanding circumcision, he said, you really are those who mutilate the flesh. And in in Greek, paratome is circumcision, and this is katatome, which means to mutilate, to cut into pieces. You have your own image in your mind. That's what he's calling them. You're not making things better. You're making things worse. You're destroying these people for whom Christ died. And he says, but we... In verse 3, we are the circumcision referring to that which he talked about in in Romans that happens to the heart when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and changes us. 
And here's what that looks like. Here's the description of what it looks like. It's not, do you follow the food laws? It's not, do you circumcise your children on the eighth day? It's not, do you keep the festivals? In verse 3, it's those who worship by the Spirit of God. Kind of what Jesus said in John chapter 4, those who worship will worship in spirit and truth. It's not about a ritual. It's not about that you're worshiping, following certain rules and regulations. Are you worshiping by the Spirit? Who glory in Christ Jesus. See, these, these Jewish Christians were glorying in the fact that, well, we've got history on our side. Right? We've known God forever and ever and ever. And they were glorying in their position, their status, their ancestry. And Paul says, no, the true circumcision glories in Jesus Christ and Him alone. And then what he's going to talk about for the rest of this passage is, and we put no confidence in the flesh. Zero. We have, we have no confidence in the flesh. And he says, oh, and by the way, if you want to see someone who really has a good reason to put confidence in the flesh, just look at me, Paul says. I have every reason in the world to brag and to boast and to glory in myself. But that is a false gospel. And what we're going to see is if, if we are glorying in ourselves, if we are worshiping in some other way, that we're not going to attain to the resurrection of the dead because as Paul says in Galatians, whenever you add something to the gospel, that's not the gospel. That is, in fact, something that gets us accursed. So when he says, beware, 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 we really should beware. Now you may think, but wait a minute. I'm not sure there's anybody in this room, maybe there's some, who've had Jewish Christians come up to you and say, if you don't do this, this, and this, you're not really a true Christian. Anybody had that in there? I have. I've never had a Jew come up to me and say, if you really want to be the people of God, you've got to do this. That's never happened to me. And so is this relevant? Well, actually, it is. And in the rest of this passage, he's going to talk about how relevant it actually is. Because it's not just those things. It's anything that we seek to add to the gospel. Anything that we seek to add to the gospel. Anything that we seek to add to the gospel means we don't have the gospel. We talked about Billy Graham, uh, Franklin Graham. He's up there and he knows, right? This isn't the way it's going to work, but let's say it is. Okay, Franklin, what are your credentials for us letting you in? And maybe right before he died, he had a bad day and, and he knows, well, it's, it's, it's because of Jesus and there's this temptation and I helped a lot of kids last year too. That's the wrong answer. It's not ever, ever, ever Jesus plus something. Right? Paul says very clearly when you add to the gospel, that person is accursed. Jesus plus something is not Jesus at all. And so that's the bigger principle that we want to talk about. There's a great temptation, especially for us Americans, to want to pull up our bootstraps, to want to pat ourselves on the back, to get her done, 
or be like the little engine that could. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And what this says is, no, you can't. No, you can't. No, you can't. You don't have anything to offer. And Paul says, if you think you do, let me explain what I had to offer. And so he begins this long list of the good things that he had to offer. And they are good. So, a word of caution. The things that we're about to talk about are not necessarily bad unless they are replacing what you're putting your confidence in to attain to the resurrection of the dead. There's a lot of things we're going to talk about that really are good things, helpful things, beneficial things. But if you are hoping that those things will earn favor with God, you're disappointed. You're going to be disappointed. So he begins by saying that I was in the right club. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Literally, that, that says, I was an eighth dayer by circumcision. The law required that all males be circumcised on the eighth day. And Paul says, I was part of that club. I was an eighth dayer. From the very beginning of my life, I've been doing it right. And then he says down in verse 7, I consider that loss. All of these things he's going to talk about is loss. I don't, that's not worth anything. So the question for us is, what club are we in? What club are we depending on? Some of you have been in church since the day you were born. Or the first Sunday after you were born. You've, you were in church and you've been there most Sundays since then. And some of us kind of, there's a little bit of pride in that. I'm, I'm a church attender, and I have been. And if that's where you have confidence, if that's one of those when you're standing before God and there's, and there's any kind of fear and you think, He should know that I've been in church every week, you don't know the gospel. You've missed it. And we, again, church attendance is not bad. We're, we're called together as a group of people and worship and fellowship and encourage. But if that's where your confidence is, if that's the club that you're in, that you're going to present as your credentials, God, I'm in the right club. Or maybe it's a denomination. Or maybe it's a, a set of, um, you know, maybe you follow the Westminster Confession. Maybe there's a, a set of doctrinal statements that you say, this is the club that I've been in since the beginning any of those things, that's not where we put our confidence. Being in the right club doesn't help us to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Paul says, I consider that loss for the sake of Christ. What about the right family? Some of you, everybody you know in your family is a believer. Aunts, uncles, cousins, parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, great-grandparents, great-great-great-great-great-grandparents for 12 generations, and your great-great-grandfather on your mother's side was a pastor, and on and on and on and on. Everybody that I know is a believer, and that's not going to get you to the resurrection of the dead. The question is not who in your family is a believer. The question is, have you trusted in the death and the resurrection Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Paul says, I'm an Israelite. I'm the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. See, it was important for you as a, as a Jew to be able to trace your lineage back to one of the, the 12 sons of Jacob. 
remember the tribe of Benjamin. I know where I'm from. When they came back from exile, there were some people who, who had lost their credentials and they were excluded from worship at the temple until they could figure out who they were, who their ancestors were. At some point in time in that 70 years of Babylon, maybe they'd lost their piece of paper. I lost my family tree. It was important for them to be of the right family. And if you've got any confidence in the fact that you've got this great family, right? Franklin's not going to be able to say, my dad is Billy. It doesn't hold any weight in heaven. That doesn't mean there aren't some good things from his dad being Billy. That doesn't mean there aren't some wonderful things for us being raised in a godly home. What a blessing that is. But that will not help us to attain to the resurrection of the dead. He goes on the end of uh, verse 5, As to the law, a Pharisee. See, Paul had the right knowledge. He knew the law frontward and backward. He'd memorized all the verses in Awana. Right? He knew he could say all the books of the Bible in order. He hadn't memorized John 3.16 yet because it hadn't been written yet. But he knew that truth. He had all his doctrine in a line. Not only that, but he could teach it to other people. And he says, that's loss. None of that matters. Right? If, if you're hoping that the fact that you've memorized lots of verses in Awana or that you teach Sunday school or that you've got the books of the Bible memorized or that you can tell God's story of redemption from Abraham to Revelation without missing a beat, and if you think that's going to impress God on that day when you stand before Him, you're greatly mistaken. Again, those are all good things. We need to have a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures and God's story of redemption. It helps us live correctly in this life. It helps us to love other people who we know His character and what He's about. That we know that He desires mercy and not sacrifice. It's hugely important as we relate to people, especially non-believers. But if I'm hoping that that's going to get me to the resurrection of the dead... And I don't know the gospel. From the right club, the right family, the right knowledge. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. Do you think you have the right passion? Do you think that, that if you muster up enough excitement and energy and passion for evangelism or church attendance or you know what I am I make sure that at the beginning of every month I put a check in the box if any of that any zeal or passion that you have about doing things if you're thinking that's going to impress God that doesn't impress God that doesn't get us to the resurrection from the dead Maybe you're passionate about, about stomping out ignorance on Facebook, right? You, you're always going to, I'm going to comment about when people post things that are not right, I'm going to fix it. Or you just, you just well up with indignation over, over sin. It's good for us to speak truth. It's good for us to fight error in the right way. Paul says that's loss. Right for, for a Pharisee, for a Jew in that point in time, the Christians were blasphemers. 
to say that this Jesus guy was God was, was insane. And so the goal was to get rid of those people. And Paul says, I'll go one step further. Not only will I kick them out of Jerusalem, I'll chase them down. I'll pursue them to the ends of the earth. I'm going to give 110% for what I know is right. And he says, God doesn't give a whip about 110%. Paul had the right club, the right family, the right knowledge, the right passion. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He had the right behavior, too. Now, I don't know if he's delusional at this point or if what he means is, I followed the, the letter of the law to a T and I offered the sacrifices at the right time. When I did sin, I, made, I did it correctly. Or if he means, I put enough fences around the law that there's no way I ever could have broke them on the outside. No one ever saw me be unblameless. I don't know what he meant by that. I'm not sure. But if you ever think that your behavior impresses God, I've gone without that particular sin for a whole week or a whole month or a whole year or a whole decade. Or I've never done that. In this area of my life, I'm blameless. Paul says, that idea I count as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. It's worthless as far as getting me to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And I think we need to be careful because human nature compels us to want to build ourselves up, to want to make us look good. Human nature urges us to say, look at me, to build your kingdom. And when push comes to shove, to begin pulling out the excuses of why we're okay. Oh, well, I I messed up here, but... I've got this great family. I messed up here, but... look, Look what I've done over the last 10 years in my Christian walk. Look how I've behaved, or look how zealous I've been, or Paul says it's loss. There's no resurrection attached to my family. There's no resurrection attached to my knowledge. There's no resurrection attached to my zeal. There's no resurrection attached to my club. There's no resurrection attached to my behavior. And so what's his attitude towards righteousness? He says... Verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. What you want, what's worth something is knowing Christ. What did Jesus say? They're going to come to me that day and say, didn't I prophesy in your name? Didn't I cast out demons in your name? But all these people that were doing, they were probably zealous. They had the right knowledge. They understood the right rules. Right? They were doing all the right stuff and, and that's what they were depending upon for resurrection. And he says, depart from me. I never knew you. The question is, do you know him? How do we know him? Well, it's a recognition that in and of myself, I'm, I'm sinful. 
and that there is a penalty for that sin. There is a cost for that sin. Paul says the wages of sin is death. Do I know that? Do I know that my sin separates me from God and that God and God alone made a way and it wasn't through my family or through my zeal or through my knowledge or through being in the right club? What he did was he sent his son to take the penalty, the death for my sin. And then he said, if you believe in that, if you believe in the death and resurrection of my son, you can have eternal life. If you turn from the kingdom of yourself and trying to have confidence in yourself to what I have offered freely, that's all that's required. And we don't kind of like that because we think we need to earn it. We don't like charity. We don't like free gifts like that. Nothing compares to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. But then, he's not sure that language is strong enough. And so he says, For the sake, for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. That word rubbish is not very nice. That's a nice way of putting that. This is the family version. It can mean like garbage, but in most places in ancient literature when we see it, it is a not, a not a nice way of saying human excrement. Right, if, if we ever get close enough to Paul being obscene, here it is. And it's anything that I would put confidence in, he says, yeah, that's what he says. That's what it is. Right? It's not worth anything. It's not. You can't count it. You can't use it for anything. All it's good for is being thrown out. Anything that you're hoping to put confidence in is not going to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Again, a lot of those things are good for us as we walk together in fellowship as a body of believers. But if you're hoping, if you're hoping at the very end, well, if nothing else, I'll pull this out. That's Christ plus something, and Christ plus something is really nothing at all. It's not the gospel. You don't know Jesus. If you're hoping or if you're thinking, maybe that won't be enough. It's enough. in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. And he says, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through, and here's where there's a disagreement in the text, that which comes through faith in Christ. But there's a debate about what that actually says. Does it not rather say, my righteousness comes from the faithfulness of Christ. So I'm going to get technical for a moment, sorry. Whenever the word faith or faithfulness, same word in the Greek, is followed by, and some of you who know Latin, learn Latin in, in homeschool, you know what I'm talking about. Whenever it's followed by a personal, it means referring to a person, genitive noun, the vast majority of occurrences, not only in the Bible, but in ancient literature, it's always the faithfulness of that person, not faith in that person. And yet for some reason, maybe just because of the Reformation and trying to, to deal with works versus faith, early on in English versions, we begin translating those, well, that's got to be our faith in Christ, right? 
and that's just kind of stuck. Uh, but there's a lot of people who think that really should be my righteousness comes from the faithfulness of Christ. That's really all that it is. I mean, whether that's what that says or not, that's what we read in the rest of Scripture. If Jesus isn't faithful, I don't have any hope at all. The only place that I get righteousness is through the faithfulness of the Son of God. He was faithful even to the point of death. Death on a cross, Paul says just a few verses earlier. And it's not like he doesn't ask us to put faith in. You, you keep reading if that's what that says. Um, but that which comes through the faithfulness of Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. My confidence, my faith, where I, where I have my assurance is in the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's the only reason that we would have, that's the only reason that we would gather this morning and celebrate the resurrection is because of what He has done for us. It is through the cross, it is through Jesus' faithfulness to the Father to bear the wrath that you and I deserved on the cross, to be tortured and killed. For us who didn't give a whit about Him and who are more interested in building our own kingdom than His. And God said that He was pleased with His Son and proved that by raising Him from the dead the third day. And that's why we celebrate. And that's why we have hope this morning. But as we started out, I don't want to assume that we all have hope. Because... If you are counting on something else, if you're hoping that, or if you're thinking that, you know, I'm, I'm really not very good and I know what Jesus did, but I probably ought to have a spare tire just to make sure, then you don't understand what He actually did. He was the only one who could do what needed to be done. He was the only one who could pay for sin. Man can't do that. I can't pay for yours. You can't pay for mine. You can't pay for your own. And so in Luke 24, after he rose from the dead, he said to his disciples, Go and preach a message of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Get them to see that if they're trusting in the kingdom of their self, they're doomed. But they need to turn and trust in my kingdom, in my sufficiency, my faithfulness. And then they have eternal life, and then they have hope. And Paul doesn't want to assume that, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, that which brought death to life. And sent shockwaves to the universe and allowed us to experience, right? Paul says, if you've been united with him in the likeness of his death, in other words, if we die to our kingdom and accept his kingdom way of doing things, we will also be united with him in the likeness of his resurrection. That resurrection power is available to us today. And may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, dying to ourself that by any means possible I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. And that's why we celebrate this morning, because we have hope. 
Not because of anything that I can muster up, because it really, if it's up to me, I'm relatively hopeless most of the time. Every once in a while I think, okay, I'm finally getting it together. You know, but it doesn't take long. Because as I said at the beginning, my wife will give me an occasion, <laughs> not a cause, an occasion to reveal what's really in my heart. Those things that, that still struggle with and wrestle with. If it's up to me, I have no hope. But we rejoice this morning because the tomb was empty. Because God gave us a way to experience the glory of the resurrection. And today, here and now, that power of that resurrection, that we are dead to sin, that we don't have to do that anymore. We still struggle. We still fight this flesh. But sin's been defeated. Death has been defeated. And you and I have hope because of that. And so we gather this morning and we change our schedule and we bring food because it's a glorious celebration of what God, God alone has done not what we can bring and offer in addition to. And so the two commands are very relevant for us. Rejoice in the Lord. As we said at the beginning, when you're rejoicing in God, it's very difficult to rejoice in yourself. And then just be aware. Are you mindful of those things that sort of try to creep in and say, you're not so bad after all? And there may be some of you sitting here who have thought all along that the resurrection was yours because of something besides Christ. And so my encouragement to you, my admonishment to you would be to think, are you trusting in anything else besides Christ's faithfulness for your hope of resurrection, for your hope of eternal life? If not, we'd love, you could talk to, there's several people in here that would love to visit with you and help you think through that. Me or Bo, there's lots of people in here you could pull aside and say, I don't, I'm not sure that I'm trusting in the right thing. And we'd love to talk to you about that. As you go out this week, as you enter the world, would you take time each day and rejoice in the Lord, rejoice in God's faithfulness to us? And then would you just think, is there anything that, I mean, imagine yourself, if I'm standing before God, is there anything that I'm going to pull out and say, yeah, and there's also this? Am I adding to anything? Or am I trusting completely in God's sufficiency? Let's pray together and then we will sing one more time. Father, we uh, are grateful for your love for us. We are grateful for the complete sufficiency of the cross of Christ for our salvation, for our sanctification, and ultimately for our glorification through the resurrection of the dead. But God, we live in this world still. We're going to walk out these doors and our flesh and the world and the devil are going to attack us and assault us and try to diminish what you have done and who you are and the power of the resurrection in our life. So God, we pray through the power of the Spirit that you would speak clearly to us. Encourage us by your love. Remind us of who you are and what you have done for us. 
We do look forward to the rest of the day. We look forward to celebrating and rejoicing with family and friends. Pray, that God, that you would bless our conversation. Pray that you would encourage us and use us in one another's lives for your glory. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Would you stand with us, please?